If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, and we're going to make our way through the first part of chapter 22 as well. We've, uh, Paul has finished his third missionary trip and is in Jerusalem. If you remember, there's some question about his loyalty to, to Judaism, essentially, to his, his, his upbringing. And so the, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem decided that Paul would go to the temple and, and join in some purification rites, possibly the end of a Nazarite vow, and, and just try, try to show the community of people that he, he's, he's still Jewish. That hasn't changed, even though he's taken this message to Gentile people and, and probably got out of his, not probably, he has gotten out of the comfort zone of many Jewish people by, by dealing a lot with Gentiles, people who are not like them. They're trying to, to show the Jewish people in Jerusalem that Paul hasn't given up on his on his heritage, that he is he's still a follower of God in that way as well. And so we're going to jump into the story, kind of in the middle of the story. So if you, you, have, you weren't here a couple weeks ago, if you read the first part of Acts 21, it's going to be a little more, have a little more clarity for you. But the seven days are over. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So the leaders of the, of the Christian church in Jerusalem thought it would be best for Paul to do this. Paul does it, and at the end of it, it's, it doesn't turn out all that great, right? Sometimes our plans don't work out like we thought. Uh, they were hoping that this would calm and settle all the confusion and all the, the troublesome uh, talk that's been happening between Paul and, and those other Jewish people, and it didn't help. It, matter of fact, maybe possibly even maybe made it a little worse. And so as, there's some people who know Paul from his missionary trips who've seen him and, and heard him preach and teach most likely. They see him in the temple, and so they decide, you know what, we're going to cause some trouble here like we've caused for Paul everywhere he's gone throughout his missionary trips. And so they stirred up the crowd, and the crowd seizes Paul. And they, what, they, what they accuse Paul of is this. It says, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, Jewish people, our law, the Torah, and this place, the temple. Now, has, has Paul done those things? Paul is Jewish. He grew up Jewish. He's still Jewish. It hasn't changed, right? This is a little bit of uh, maybe what you would call being slightly dramatic. Look what they say. He teaches everyone, really? Okay, now you've lost me already, right? He teaches everyone. He's taught everybody in the world is what you're telling me. That's the story you're going to give me. Okay, your kids have done this to you before, right? Well, everybody, who's everybody? Name them. Name everybody. Everyone... Everywhere, Paul's been everywhere apparently. He's now, he's now God. He, he can go anywhere at, at any point in time, right? And he teaches everybody everywhere against our people. Those people are his people, right? Those are, those are Paul's people. Against our law, that same law that Paul has followed, and against this place, the place in which Paul is trying to go and do what? Worship. But all three of the accusations are simply not true. And besides this, he says, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Also, hasn't happened. Paul hasn't brought a Gentile into the temple. It's not, not what's happened. This is what happens sometimes when you do things that are scary 
you do things that are brand new, people are going to have they're going to take issue with it. We've taught talked a lot in the last probably month and a half about leadership, as we see a lot of I believe leadership lessons from the Apostle Paul and through the Book of Acts. When you lead and you lead from the front, expect people from the back to pick at you endlessly. When you do things differently, not as how we have always done it, people are going to take issue with it. If you don't believe me, I'll become a pastor someday and you'll figure it out real quick. When I, when I became a pastor of the Church in Willows, they promised, the board, before I got there, promised that they would not use the phrase, this is what we've always done, right? They were ahead of it. But we've always done it that way. Well, you can always do something wrong for a real long time, right? You can do the wrong thing for a long time, make a habit of it, and think it's great. Like, that, if you're going to lead, you're going to have to, change is going to happen. We all know that. And what Paul has done has been dramatic, right? As he's taken this gospel to the, to the people the Jewish people really didn't want anything to do with for a very long time. People who were unclean. And Paul takes this message of hope and salvation to them in ways that he never would have until he encountered this Jesus. And it's making people uncomfortable because it's not how we've always done it. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's wrong. And so look what, what happens to Paul. Verse 30 to 32. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So what happened during Jewish festivals was there was obviously the city swelled, right? All kinds of people made the pilgrimage from wherever they lived to worship at the temple and come to Jerusalem. And so the Romans knew that. The Romans, if anything, were good at keeping peace. Now, they, it was with the sword. That's how they kept peace, but they kept peace. And so the job of the Romans during this time was to make sure the city didn't do exactly what it's trying to do right here, right? Riot, to rebel. Now, if you know your history, you know that it was just not too, a century or so before this that the Jewish people had th- tried to, to throw out Romans, and there were still people who belonged to that zealot group. Matter of fact, one of those, if you know your apostles, one of those was a follower of Jesus who wanted the Romans gone. Says, Jewish people, we want to rule ourselves and who can blame them, right? And so what they try to do during these holiday feasts is try to keep the peace to the best of their ability. And so when an uproar happens, they're going to respond swiftly and severely to it. And so while they've seized Paul and the temple gates have been shut and they're literally trying to kill him, and we learn in verse 31, they're going to beat Paul to death. Luckily, news of this ha- runs, it reaches the ears of the commander of the Roman troops and they respond. And if they don't respond, I think Paul's end actually happens right here. That Paul is going to be killed. Luckily, in verse 32, he takes some officers and some soldiers, and they run down to the crowd. And when the, when the crowd sees the commanders and his soldiers, they stop beating Paul. That's the only thing that stops them. If not, Paul's probably dead here. Now, Paul has been through some stuff, has he not? If you go back, I did this this week, if you go back to the book of Acts, there's time and time again where from Paul's very first missionary trip where he has to be lowered out of the city at night to when he's beaten in Philippi. To when, I mean, there's time and time and time again Paul has endured and endured and endured hardship. And here one more time, he endures it. And this time he's beaten. And, and I think we can, we can use our sanctified imagination and say he's beaten pretty badly. Because the only reason they stop is because the soldiers show up. And here again, Paul is bruised and bloodied for this Jesus one more time. 
It won't be the last time, but one more time. The commander came, in verse 33, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Remember what happened just a few weeks ago? What was the prophecy that Agabus had? Remember he took Paul's belt off of him, wrapped it around him, and said what? When you get to Jerusalem, this was going to happen. You're going to end up in chains. And well, sure enough, it didn't take long for it to happen. Then he asks him, hey, what's going on here, right? What have, what have you done? Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. It, it's so shocking, I know, that crowds don't always have real big brains, uh, or any at all. When people get together in mass, apparently they lose their, their identity as a human being and they just start chanting stupid things, right? So here, apparently, we got one part of the crowd yelling one thing, one part of the crowd yelling the other, and none of them know what's going on. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. This is good for Paul, right? We're getting Paul away from the crowd, the crowd that wants to kill him. When Paul reaches, reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. That doesn't mean like send him somewhere to, to Hawaii on vacation, right? That means like kill him. Paul has caused an uproar just by his presence. He didn't say anything. Nothing happened here. He didn't give a big sermon. Just his presence. Another lesson in leadership. Sometimes people who are doing good things, people don't always respond to them all that well. Sometimes if you're going to lead, you're going to have to go through days like this. Hopefully you don't actually get beaten by a crowd and they try to kill you, but it feels like it sometimes. If you're going to lead from the front, you have to be able to accept criticism. Know that criticism is going to come. And as you're going to see in just a moment, sometimes that criticism might have nothing to do with the truth. It might not even be remotely true, but you're going to have to take it. And look what happens next. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. This is my favorite verse of the whole section. Verse 38. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Wait, what? Huh? We all know where Paul has been. Has he... Has he been to the Egyptian wilderness any time recently? No, he hasn't, right? I love this verse. I, it's just it's the most... What? Can you imagine Paul? Like, how do you defend yourself? What are you talking about? I have no clue. What you're t- no, I, that's not me. I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. When you lead, people are going to say all kinds of things about you, and none of them might be true. And you've got to just take them. If you want to lead, if you want to be in front, People are going to speak all kinds of ill things about you. And you're going to hear them and think to yourself, I didn't know I did that. I mean, it sounds like a good time, but I, I wasn't there for it. I wasn't present. And here, as Paul's ushered into the barracks, the commander says, hey man, aren't you that Egyptian guy who started a revolt, led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness? And Paul's thinking to himself, no, I've been accused of lots of things, but no, no, I'm not. It, I'm not Egypt. I'm not, I don't know where to start. I'm not an Egyptian and I'm not a terrorist. I know I don't have a group of people I led into the wilderness. Like, what are, we, what are we talking about here? If you spend any time on social media, you know that at some point you'll be accused of something. That you'll find out something about yourself. Well, you live in a small town. You know. There's only 5,500 people here in Weezer. We've got nothing to do but talk about each other, apparently. So you've heard something about yourself before and thought to yourself, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. Now, you can defend yourself all you want, but it, it, it is what it is, right? 
people are going to gossip, and people who love to gossip are going to continue to gossip, and it's not going to change. I've heard all kinds of things about myself. I thought, really? I didn't. No, I did that. It's a lesson. Verse 38 is a wonderful lesson for us to learn. People are going to speak things about you that aren't true sometimes. It is what it is. I can't control their actions. I was a very young kid when my parents, who are sitting right here, taught me that the only thing I can control is my actions. I can't control yours. I can't, I can, the only thing I can control is my tongue. I can't control anybody else's. People are going to say things about you. If they're not true, don't worry about it. Remember, your sharpest critics are actually your biggest cheerleaders. Because apparently all they think about is you. People who are always criticizing you have you on the mind all the time. I learned very early on in leadership that you should take it as a compliment. That if all they can do is talk bad about you, all they can do is talk about you. And apparently you are really important to them. Because they love thinking and talking about you. I mean, it's, it's true. If someone's going to criticize you time and time and time again, they're spending way too much time thinking about you. Trust me, I'm not worth that much time. Stop, right? You should have something better to do with your life if all you're thinking about is how you can possibly say something bad about you or me. But they're actually your cheerleader. It's, they're not the good cheerleader, right? They don't ever stand up and cheer outright for you, but they're cheering for you apparently because all they're doing is thinking and talking about you. But the person who criticizes us the most apparently pays us also the most attention. And Paul's accused of being an Egyptian terrorist with 4,000 followers, and he thinks to himself, I, I, no, look what he says in verse 39. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. He goes, no, I'm not. What do you want me to say? No, I'm not from Egypt. I'm not a terrorist, and I have no one following me that wants to kill you. Can I speak now? Like, what? You're slowing me down here, dude. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The Lord of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people 
of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken in the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting to him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Paul gives a testimony that we all read in Acts 9, right? His, his trip to Damascus and his conversion. And it doesn't apparently sway the crowd. They hear it, and they're not, they're not swayed. And so they decide, you know what? Enough's enough. It's time to kill him. It's time to be over. Now we have to draw some parallels here. The Apostle Paul and the one in whom he serves. It's at this same place that Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, was taken crowd shouted, what? Crucify. Crucify. Before he was crucified, he was flogged. He was beaten. Before taking his own cross part of the way to Calgary. Remember, when Paul accepted the mission of Jesus, suffering was part of the mission. Remember, Ananias had a conversation with God when Ananias was supposed to go to help Paul. And, and God told him what? Hey, this, this Paul guy, this Saul, he's going to suffer an awful lot for me. God's word never comes back void. Sure enough, man, Paul has suffered, hasn't he? And he's suffering again. Now, assuming the beating he took was pretty severe, makes sense to what happens at the end of this chapter. The commander orders in verse 24 Paul to be taken in the barracks. He directs him to be flogged and interrogated. Now, flogging is not a fun time. Right? Your clothes are taken from you, and you're tied up, and you're beaten. Over and over again. And depending on what they decide to beat you with, it depends on how the beating's going to go. If it's just rods, that's, that's the best you can get. If you, if you, there's other devices that the Romans used that were much worse. If you don't believe me, you can always Google the cat of nine tails, which had it was a, leather, a handle with leather straps, then they put rocks or hooks or pieces of glass in it, and they would, they would beat your back. So the flogging is many people died during it and didn't live. Uh, they went into shock because of the loss of blood. And Paul's taken one of these before, if you remember, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, he, uh, he took one of these beatings in Philippi for a brand new church. There he took it, was silent, took the beating, and once the beating was over and he was in jail, if you remember right, he had 
jailer brought to him and, and reminded them of, or told them for the first time that, hey, yeah, you, just so you know, you beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And the people in Philippi about lost their mind, if you remember, right? Oh, no, we're in trouble. The reason I tell you that is it's different here in this, in this story. Instead of taking the beating this time, he invokes the right of a Roman citizen instantly and says, hey, uh, you can flog me if you like, but uh, if you do that as to a Roman citizen, what are the consequences of that? And the consequences are great. And they're grave. I can't tell you exactly why. I, I, one reason, I think, is Paul knows he's not quite done yet. And after the beating he took by the crowd, there's a good chance he might not survive the flogging. He might not make it through. And he knows that God has something in store for him, that this imprisonment isn't just an imprisonment, that, he, that God's going to do something through it. I don't know, trying to get into Paul's mind, but what we do know is instead of taking the being this time, he invokes his right as a Roman citizen and says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Can you do this? And the answer to that, of course, is is no. No. This is how this this section ends. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, what are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul's answer is yes, I am. Yes, I am. Now, Paul has rights as a Roman citizen that as a normal Jewish person, he simply would not have. And so I want to ask the question as we reach the end here, why did God choose Paul? And there's a lot of reasons, but I want you to think about that. We'll read this and we'll talk about it. And the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul's response, I was born a citizen. It didn't cost me a dime. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Did you see what what switched here? Something happened, didn't it? Paul went from being the, the person in chains, having no power, having no authority, to as a Roman citizen, the people who are holding him now go, uh oh, what do we do? What do we do? switched, didn't it? Paul is now in a place where he has a little more power and a little more authority because of his Roman citizenship. Now, there's lots of reasons I believe God called Paul to do what he did. One, Paul is intelligent, is super intelligent. If you don't believe me, you can join us. I think in the Bible study, what we're going to start doing is the book of Romans. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Romans, you know the book of Romans is it's, it's pretty intense, written by the hand of Paul. And when it comes to, to thoughts about God and theology, it's, it's, probably, uh, it's probably the book. Paul is well-spoken. He can speak in front of people. He's not scared. I know a lot of people aren't fond of public speaking. Paul is, is fine with it. But another reason I think that God chooses Paul is because he is a Roman citizen. He knows that Paul can do things that most other people, that Peter couldn't do, that John couldn't do, that these people who grew up in Jerusalem their whole lives, they didn't have the ability to do. When they left Jerusalem, all their influence was gone. But Paul, being a Roman citizen, when he leaves Jerusalem, he actually has more influence as a Roman citizen. He'll be able to do things that they simply could not do. And so the reason, I, one of the reasons I believe that God gives Paul this mission is because of the fact he's a Roman citizen, because he can do what he's about to do Right here. And as a Roman citizen, he has rights that none of the other of these first Christians would have had. And Paul's going to use those rights, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the early church and those who believe, which is one of our, another one of those leadership lessons, isn't it? And when we, as leaders, you better be prepared to sacrifice 
for those you've been charged to lead. If not, get out of the way and let someone else do the job. If you don't want to give, if you don't want to sacrifice, then go do something else. There's somewhere else you can go to work, but don't take a job that involves leadership because leadership isn't about you as the leader. It's about those who you've been charged to lead. And when you do that right, those people won't just follow, they'll be happy to follow because they know that you're willing to do anything it takes to get the mission done. Man, if you were someone and you had to follow Paul, you'd be all in, would you not? He'll take a beating for you if he has to. He's proven it time and time again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this section of Scripture, Father, which we know is not happy. It's not one of those sections that we, we delight in reading, God, but we learn so much from it. We see as Paul faces another hardship, the resolve in which he had, God, that he was true to the mission you gave him to take your gospel, your good news to everybody, not just to the people that were like him, the people he was comfortable with, the people who were unlike him, to these Gentile people. Father, he suffered because of it, suffered greatly because of it from both Gentile people and Jewish people. And yet Paul never backed down from the mission, but drew closer and closer to you and set his face forward and kept moving on, kept accomplishing your purposes for him. God, help us to do the same. You've given each of us different purposes in life. You've given us different gifts and abilities. Help us to use those for your glory, God. Help us to learn from Paul and what we read in the book of Acts about what it means to lead, God, to sacrifice and to give for others, to be willing to do what's best for them and not what's best for, for us. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. And we thank you for your son Jesus, who set the example before Paul ever did of what it means to sacrifice and what it meant to lead. It's Jesus who did nothing for himself, but everything for us, including the cross. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you would send your son to this earth to die on our behalf, to, to bring us back to relationship with you and to forgive us our sins and give us the hope of heaven. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in your powerful and healing name we pray. Amen.